joke. I could swallow the sea. I could hold my breath and count to a zillion. I can fly. I can stretch and stretch for a million billion miles till I'm the highest man in the world. Yeah, well, I could become a giant robot with magic death rays. That's nothing, man. I can't be burnt. Like, I could eat flame and stick my head in an oven and close the door and turn invisible and count... Hey! Will you kids keep it down in there? Your mother's got a splitting headache! And knock off that boasting! If the same old senseless posturing has got you ready to chunk your terrarium and start raising sea monkeys, hold the bus. You've got the bragging rights to the best mix of freeform music and public affairs. Right here on WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor, 88.3, Radio Free, no lion. I can speak 12 languages and turn into plastic man. Well, I could talk to animals and turn into Stretch Armstrong and The Flash. I seen Star Wars and Planet of the Apes 8 trillion times. Yeah, well, I seen Tatum O'Neill naked. Yeah, well, I could eat 900 boxes of Count Chocula, and my uncle used to host Whopper Room, and he knows Count Chocula, Godzilla, and Bruce Lee personally. I got an iron neck. Hey, I thought I told you to keep it down in there. If I hear one more word, you're getting head cheese for dinner, and I mean it. I can juggle machetes. Man, I ate the brown acid at Woodstock. You liar.
Got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, let's see, I should also say you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. And today on the program, I'm so happy to have Derek Peterson here in the studio with me. Derek, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. <laughs> we've um, We've got your books on the table here. We've got um, creative writing, translation, bookkeeping, and the work of imagination in colonial Kenya, um, 2004, and ethnic patriotism and the East African revival, a history of dissent, um, 1935 to 1970. Terrible, terrible title, I have to say. <laughs> it's one of these titles that was created to allow search algorithms to find the book on Amazon. But titles, the art of a good title has completely gone out the window in the past you know, 10 or 15 years as the internet has transformed titling altogether. But, so that title is awful. What was the title that you would want to have on here? Like what was like... So the book is about this, uh, it's about the history of this movement called the East African Revival, whose converts read a book by John Bunyan, the 16th, 1600s English writer, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, very closely and intently in their own vernacular wow. languages. So the title of the book was going to be fantastic. It would have sort of <laughs> leapt off the shelves. It was going to be The Pilgrim's Politics. But as soon as I ran that title past my editor, the uh, response was, no, that will never work. People will think it's about Thanksgiving, you know, this sort of thing. Not the really? right thing. Yes. So I ended up with this very long and boring title. But even though, but, uh, yeah, because that's, that's great. They should have listened to you because you they could should. have had, yes. um, you know, Pilgrim's <laughs> Politics and then, uh, you know, the yeah. good old colon right. and more, yes. right? Right. Colons have disappeared from book titles. It's a troubling problem. Let's for bring it back. Exactly. Bring in back the colon. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> and semicolons aren't bad either. Huh? Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> well, um, let's see. Before we go too far into the show, because um, thanks for picking out the music for today too, Derek. Sure. We Pleasure. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, and uh, we wanted to do a shout out to longtime listener Harry out there listening. Harry, thanks for calling in to say hi. And, and we appreciate you. So thanks. Thanks for listening. Um, Okay, so the biography here, the short bio of Derek R. Peterson. Derek R. Peterson is, a, is professor in the history department and the Department of Afro-American and African Studies at the University of Michigan. His early scholarly work was about the history of African language literature in Kenya. Later, he wrote a prize-winning book about the East African Revival, a Christian conversion movement that challenged cultural nationalists' control over civic life. With funding from the American Council of Learned Societies and the National Endowment for the Humanities, he is currently working on a new book about the Ugandan dictator Idi Amin. In 2016, Peterson was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in African Studies and elected Fellow of the British Academy. In 2017, he was awarded a MacArthur Fellowship. So that brings us up to this moment. Yeah, um, sounds pretty good. Yeah, it does. <laughs> hey, congratulations, <laughs> well, by the way. Thanks. I mean, that's, I, that, that was... Well, what is that? Has that has that changed anything with work? Because you have been, I mean, to be honest, you have been winning awards and, and funding and grants along the way hmm. um, for your for your scholarship. Um, no, the University of Michigan has been extremely generous in helping me do things that I wanted to do outside sort of the formal domain of scholarship. And you came in 2009, Derek? I came in 2009. There's a new African Studies Center that was founded the year before I got here. 
And the African Studies Center has allowed me and a number of other people to do really interesting and exciting things in kind of the field of the public humanities, archive preservation, music research, radio work, and other such things that you can't do if you have only a university salary to work with. So, you know, the MacArthur funding lets me do things that Michigan won't pay for. Um, so, you know, I'll allow, I'll be able to bring in next uh, semester a museum curator from Uganda um, who I'm working with to design new exhibitions in the Uganda Museum. He'll come to Ann Arbor for a couple of months. I can pay for that with MacArthur money, um, but I couldn't have paid for it with Michigan money because of the way the funding works. Anyway, so, you know, it, it opens up uh, the budget a bit more widely. It lets me kind of think of interesting and creative things to do. But already Michigan has been a fantastic place to get kind of cool stuff going in the field of African studies because of the way the African Studies Center has been supported and enabled by our administration to kind of let scholars pursue ambitions that are outside the formal domain of scholarship, as I said. And can you tell us more about the African Studies Center, like where it is on campus? Like, is it... Yeah. Is it... I, forgive me, because I know, is it a place? Well... <laughs> or is it an idea where every uh, where everyone can come? It's a place to... and an idea, yeah, Okay, team. okay. <laughs> <laughs> like all good institutions, it has a reputation and a set of loyalties that structure how people are involved in it. It is kind of a place, you know, the foot physical footprint of all university departments is always contingent on funding. So, you know, right now it's in a newly refurbished building, Weiser Hall, as it's called, over on the other side of campus on the fifth floor. There's a couple of offices. But really, the African Studies Center resides in the hearts of all Africa scholars and all African students at the university. It's, it's an idea that holds that, you know, Africa... Look, unlike other domains of scholarship, African studies inspires loyalty among those of us who pursue it. Because of the, you know, the enjoyments of research, because of our loyalty to the places that we study, because of the difficulties that students from Africa and scholars of Africa confront as we try to produce scholarly work about the place, in that sense, there's a kind of camaraderie and shared devotion to the project of advancing the study of Africa that gives U of M uh, African studies, you know, a kind of ambition and and direction and enthusiasm that I think perhaps other area studies projects might not experience in such great uh, um, depth. Right. So camaraderie, yeah. a community. Yeah. Um, Forged in, in the context of difficulty and constraint, really. Yeah. Um, and also in the context of kind of a profound sense of, you know, indebtedness to the people that we study. Like if we're going to go and work with people who dedicate their time and energy to advancing our own work, then we ought to in turn do what we can do to help open resources in the global north to universities and colleagues in the global south who can benefit from such alliances. That's what the African Studies Center is meant to do, open up the doors of Ann Arbor to students from here and, you know, scholars and colleagues and co-travelers in African contexts who can develop collaborations and shared research projects that draw Ann Arbor together with different African institutions and, uh, and universities. And is, is there something coming up soon that we could that tell everyone about that, that like a program that's on deck or yeah, sure. um, an event? Well, the 10th anniversary of the African Studies oh, Center. Oh, wow, perfect. <laughs> yeah, there we are. May, uh, there's going to be a program of activity that's just now being planned, T, so it's a good time. Mid-March, March 15th, 16th, and 17th, there will be a program of uh, lectures and uh, seminars and such that will kind of call attention to the work that we've been doing in this domain over the past 10 years. It's being put together by 
uh, Kelly Askew, who's the director, the founding director of the center, and it will be a very good uh, good occasion. So more to come. On oh, that excellent, excellent. Yeah. So keep 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 me posted because sure. we'll yeah. um, let everyone know. Um, okay, well let's. Let's take a short break, and then when we come back, we'll talk more today with Derek Peterson. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. We've got Steph behind the glass. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. Um, today on the program, Derek Peterson is here. Um, so we started off the program. Thanks for choosing the Mingus, too, for today. I, in a way, we could just listen, <laughs> listen, listen, get carried away in, yeah. into the, the music. Um uh, so we started off the program, and you you were so funny, Derek, because you were <laughs> saying about the, the title of... Um, uh, your book, Ethnic Patriotism. Well, let's just call it <laughs> Pilgrim's Politics. There we go. <laughs> um, but your first book, um, Creative Writing, mm. um, I love that as a title. So that that one you did have, because like, because also it's not what you're necessarily going to expect, because you have a different definition for this this title, Creative Writing, Translation, Bookkeeping, and the Work of Imagination in Colonial Kenya. Yeah, that book got shelved under uh, how-to manuals in the Library of Congress classification. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it is, it's there along with, you know, how to write an essay and how to, you know, this sort of thing, how so to char- it, write characters, that sort of thing. So so it really yeah. did get lost. Like, we well, weren't joking about the titling. Titling <laughs> is, a, is a whole rat's nest for anybody who works in the field of the social sciences or humanities. But yeah, the book, that book's about, <clears throat> it. I guess you know, I was glad that uh, that it ended up being in the place where it is in the library, in the hopes that people who work as creative writers might possibly find inspiration from it and a kind of sense of orientation and historicity about what they do. The book's about it's now it's now fifteen years old, but it's about how uh, in central Kenya, uh, people who wrote in the language of the place, it's called Kikuyu, developed new ways of writing and speaking in their own vernacular languages over the course of 100 years. So the argument basically is to say that languages change 
uh, in response to people's efforts to say new things in their language. And to think new things. And to think new things. As new politics become thinkable, so too do languages expand or contract and take different directions. So it, it's a kind of, you know, it's a book that takes language change as a kind of subject of political history, basically. It, this is an aside note, and then we'll jump back um, to the book. But do you think that our current language, like American English, is contracting at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly heading in different directions than, you know, might have been the case. All of the shortening and contracting, as you say, of Twitter uh, new vehicles for communicating emotions, these emoticons, which I don't fully understand, but, you know, they're there as a, and they're available to communicate things that had previously been only available in face-to-face uh, communication, or perhaps, you know, marginalia has always been part of textual communication. So, I don't know, I'd have to think through that more fully, but it certainly feels as though there's a kind of, you know, a missing element of language today in a world in which everything's being compressed by the technologies with which we work. And it also seems like in the way, um, I almost feel like the word amazing has been taken away from me. Sometimes it's it's like overused, like everything is amazing and beautiful. And (laughs) um, whereas the ideas aren't actually articulated, there's just uh, some sort of trumped up positive, like, frame around them too that in the in the realm of politics in some ways yeah it just i wonder about that the disappearing like the challenge to actually articulate your ideas clearly well look i mean all linguistic communication relies on a certain amount of self-advertising uh and self-inflation in order to make words stick these are the preoccupations of any speaker of any language to find ways of you know, making yourself listenable, of commanding an audience. Um, So there's always been, not least in African languages, a kind of inflationary aspect to oral communication that goes with an effort to command an audience. This is what scholars who work in this field called addressivity, the ability to get people to listen to you, to hail an audience. Kikuyu people in central Kenya used a word called aterere, uh, to command an audience prior to the advent of print. Atarere means, hey, pay attention, you know, <laughs> listen to me. Kikuyu people didn't have kings, they didn't have chiefs or full-time rulers. Atarere was the word that people who wanted to command an audience and a following used to get other uh, people within an oral community to attend to what they said. What's interesting is that that word makes its way into print uh, in the 20th century and becomes a vehicle by which the first generation and later writers of the Kikuyu language used to get oral print audiences likewise to attend to what was on the page. One of the earliest newspapers published in the Kikuyu language was Atarere, that same word that had earlier connoted you know, the attending that one was obliged to, uh, to show in oral audiences. So, you know, again, amazing is a species of inflation <laughs> that all languages uh, pursue. Right, right. <laughs> right. Um, and so... You went, so you went to Kenya as a graduate student. Yeah. Then is this, how did, could you go back, maybe go back and tell us your connection, like how, how this happened, how you began to pursue this, how this became such a part of your heart that you. Well, I had the good fortune of having a Fulbright grant right after I finished my, my undergraduate degree. Uh, And that took me off to Kenya for a year. Fulbrights are amazing. Any undergraduates listening to this program should apply for a Fulbright to go to some exciting place because, assuming the funding line is still there in this new budget, who knows how that that will turn out. But 
Um, you know, the William Fulbright, the J. William Fulbright Fund opens up opportunities for hundreds of American students every year to go off to unlikely places around the world and to basically do interesting things. It's unlike Peace Corps in that in the Peace Corps, you're obliged to do philanthropic work of some kind, sometimes poorly conceived, sometimes well conceived. Fulbright is meant to be a kind of scholarly undertaking, promoting cultural understanding, but also grounded in a kind of scholarly project. And for me, the Fulbright was a fantastic way to get into uh, the life of the mind. I used my Fulbright funds to study Swahili language, which is uh, the regional language of East Africa, and Kikuyu. Uh, and indeed, the book that you were just talking about, Creative Writing, grow out, grew out of my, my efforts to understand Kikuyu language. I was studying Kikuyu in an Anglican church language school in Nairobi, I was so taken with the way in which the language seemed to change over time as I consulted different dictionaries that I became interested in language change itself as a subject of scholarly research. Um, so for me, Fulbright opened the door, and the, the experience of learning languages opened the door to a much wider set of preoccupations to do with how people think and how uh, the changing architecture of intellectual life helps inform human culture more generally. Mm. The yeah. changing architecture. Yeah, I've become increasingly interested in media, infrastructure, the things that uphold public culture. Uh, those are the preoccupations that are now guiding my own work and indeed shaped the way that I wrote that first book as well. Yeah. So, so maybe then moving forward in time, your current work is centering around U Uganda yeah. and Idi Amin and, and, and maybe also part of it's radio. That's right, yeah. <laughs> No, I, in the past uh, 10 years, more or less, I've been working on a project about uh, the Uganda dictator Idi Amin. I don't know how many of your listeners will remember Idi Amin. In his own time, he was notorious. Fearsome, really. Fearsome character who, you know, stalked the imaginations of uh, Europeans and Americans with images of African savagery and brutality. He was his own best propagandist. He kept a very close eye on what was said about him in the international press. So he was a myth maker for himself and, and had an agenda to shape the, the press. Indeed, yeah. A few years ago, some students from Michigan worked with some uh, students from Makedade and with me to catalog the National Archives of Uganda in the basement of the archive in a room at the end of a long corridor of rooms in a lightless chamber, we found boxes and boxes full of press clippings that had been assembled by Idi Amin's press bureau in the 1970s with notations describing mentions of Idi Amin, even in local newspapers published in the United States. It seems as though... They just scanned, they the, scanned the world press. Exactly. Looking for material that they that referenced the Amin administration, which they would clip and then put into a file for Amin to look at. He was very, very much interested in his own image abroad and was quite keen to get a particular kind of uh, persona projected into the public domain internationally as much as locally within Uganda's politics. Yeah. Um, for his own ends to, in that way. So what was his story? Because he was a soldier and then a general yeah. and then the coup. But, but was he... I don't know. Do so the you, do chronology you... is, uh, you've kind of gone through it there. It's uh, He was a soldier in the King's African Rifles, which was the British army of colonial East Africa. After Ugandan independence in 1962, he became one of the senior ranking officers in the Uganda Rifles, as it was then called later the Uganda Army. Uh, in 1966, he became the commander of the Uganda Army. 
um, and formed a very close relationship with the president at that time. His name was Milton Obote, Uganda's first president after independence. Uh, Amin and Obote, um, you know, uh, cohabited, <laughs> as it were, in a kind of uneasy alliance from through the late 60s up to 25th of January 1971, when Amin took the opportunity of President Obote's uh, trip to Singapore for a, a conference while Amin was, sorry, while Obote was in Singapore, Amin organizes a coup, uh, goes on the air on Radio Uganda uh, and makes an announcement about he how he'd been called to serve by the Uganda army in the interest of the Ugandan Republic to overthrow the dictator Obote and to inaugurate a new era of freedom and black political empowerment uh, in East Africa. And that was 25th January 1971 was the kind of the starting point of this cultural and political program that made up the Amin, Amin government. It's the sub- subject of my book. And, and in the book that you're currently writing. That's right. Yeah. And, and does that have a working title that not, you have made? <laughs> not yet. For reasons I've referred to earlier, I have been unable to figure out a title. Perhaps one of your intrepid listeners will come up so- with something for me. But. And, and this book so far, it's been 10 years in the research. Yeah. And so, and so it started, this project started because you were in these hallways and you found doing part of this larger archival work that you've been digitizing archives and preserving the archives and you you happen to find these boxes and that's what yeah like sparked it look the uganda government hasn't um until 2016 hasn't had capacity to deal with uh, local government archives local government in uganda means county level or municipal level government uh, papers and so all over Uganda in local municipal buildings and in district level buildings, there are piles and piles of paperwork that have been kept in a variety of poor states of preservation. So for the past 10 years, I've been working with colleagues from Mountains of the Moon University out in Western Uganda to organize and digitize and make accessible district level archives around the country. Uh, And it's been very successful. We've used little pots of money from Michigan, from the Center for Research Libraries in Chicago uh, and from other universities to create a digital archive now that consists of around half a million scans, which is the biggest digital repository of government documents in Africa. It's uh, housed now at Mountains of the Moon University. Uh, what on, a great sounding university, I would just like yeah, to say. Got, is it as, it sounds like a wonderful <laughs> No, it's kind of got this mythic quality. It's it does. <laughs> off in the off to the west of the university is the mountains of the moon, as they're called, the Ruanzori Mountains on the Congo border, and they kind of loom over the town with this imposing, shadowy presence that you can see whenever you go outside. It's lovely. It's like you know, it, it, Uganda has this topographic and environmental context. It's not unlike Switzerland. This dramatic you know, shifts in altitude and politics that um, that make it an extraordinarily complicated and interesting place to live and work in <laughs> because of the great variety of human cultures and outlooks on life that proliferate among people who live in such dramatically different environmental conditions. Right. Yeah. So Mountains of the Moon University there in the foothills of the Ruanzoris is the place where we've been doing this archival work. And as I mentioned, it's that it's that archival work, these district-level archives that have given me the material by which to write this book about Idi Amin. It's about, effectively, the experience of living under the Amin government. Uh, it's an effort to sort of center the experience of bureaucrats and 
museum curators and radio technicians and other folks who made the Amin state function in a time in which violence and precarity and uh, austerity were very much the norm in public life. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. We'll talk more. Today on the program, Derek Peterson is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. São Vicente, nasce alegria, nasce sabura, vão caputo fazer ideias, na carna malar amassado, já me conchia São Vicente, nasce alegria, nasce sabura, vão caputo fazer ideias, na carna malar amassado. São Vicente é um brasileiro, cheio de alegria, cheio de cor, nesse três dias de loucura. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Derek Peterson is here. Michigan's own Derek Peterson. <laughs> and thanks again for picking the music. That one was a great one. That that's was, that's always... Cesaria Evora, the great Cape Verdean singer, singing about the carnival in one of the islands of Cape Verde, uh, Sal Vicente. How much time do you are you able to spend on the continent of Africa? Like in, you know, what, what's that like in your life life map so far? Well, I mean, uh, one has more time, anybody who's a scholar or a student has more time when you're actually a student to relax and spend time in a place that you're interested in. As you become older, obligations tie you closer to home. So when I was younger, I lived in Kenya for two years uh, in the company of my my wife. uh, And uh, since then, since, you know, I got my PhD in 2000, it's been a more rapid fire set of, uh, you know, relationships. I, uh, until seven years ago, I spent more or less two or three months every year in East Africa, um, occasionally more time as I had sabbatical leave. Uh, seven years ago, I had a baby. And so my obligations now are largely here. I still am able to spend time, usually something like a month or a month and a half in Uganda these days, uh, depending on the obligations I have here at home. <laughs> and and when you go, is it more, is it focused largely on seeing how this, the preservation of the archives is going? Because it sounds like you're organizing um, many students, students um, from, let's see, like the, from African institutions as well as the University of Michigan, even. Yeah, no, it, I mean, one of the lovely things about becoming a bit 
further along in my career is that you can think about different media and different forums and different institutions that uh, one can work with, that you can work with as a scholar. So as I've already described, I've been working with this university in the west of Uganda to digitize government archives. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got stuck in with the Uganda Museum, which is a, a public museum in Kampala that uh, um, was built, the building was put up in 1958. The collection was built over the course of the first half of the 20th century. The installation of the building went hand in hand with the development of museum displays, which haven't really been changed since the early 1960s. There's been efforts around the edges to transform little parts of the museum. So it's like a museum of a museum. Yeah, everything is very, uh, you know, kind of displayed in a way that evokes a mid-20th century museum curatorial practice. Um, so myself and the curator of the museum, uh, the ethnographic curator of the museum, who's a lovely man named Nelson Abiti, have been working with Ugandan colleagues and students to develop plans for a new national history gallery, uh, which would involve the renovation of the old part of the museum and perhaps also a new building where it might be possible to talk about the second half of the 20th century as a subject of historical and sort of, you know, cultural reflection. So we've got in mind a whole bunch of special displays that we think will eventually feed into a plan for a national history gallery that can sort of re-enliven re this otherwise kind of dated uh, set of displays. Yeah. It does It does seem like you, you need to have time there on the ground, really. Yeah, that's for, right. For these projects. Mm. Yeah. And, but you also need to be somewhere where you're writing because you've got this this work in progress, this book, how many chapters are you envisioning this? Because it looks like we've got three of the book chapters here on the table with us. Um, <laughs> yeah. How, yeah, what, what's the, do you have a sense of the shape of the project or is it, is it, it's, it's big. So it's, it's on, like, ongoing. I think it's probably about two thirds done. It's going to be, I think, 10 chapters. I'm trying to write it as a book that will appear in, uh, Barnes and Noble and perhaps in airports. That is, I think it's important that Africa scholars would find a way to address audiences that are bigger than scholarly communities. The deficit of knowledge about African culture and the political history in the United States is really profound. And, you know, there's a lot of work that one can do as a teacher in the classroom, but um, I sort of feel an obligation at this stage in my career to find a way to talk to audiences that are never going to come into my university classroom but that I can engage perhaps through a book that would use Idi Amin and his notoriety as a sales strategy, frankly, to tell a story about um, kind of the cultural politics and the experience of ordinary Ugandans living in circumstances of danger uh, and constraint, but who nonetheless uh, are engaged in high-minded, creative, and meaningful work even in dangerous times. That's kind of the theme of the book. I'm trying to bring to light ordinary Ugandans' efforts to make meaning uh, out of the lives that they live in times of danger and constraint. Yeah. I think I've just decided that's what the book's about. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that ties back to your, the, your early book, Creative Writing, yeah. where you're actually looking at the, the stories and the language changes, but looking at, like, looking closely at the people's language, not what was the, um, 
don't take this the wrong way as a history professor, <laughs> but sometimes some of what we are told from history isn't, isn't the story of the people aren't the narratives of the people. Yeah, I mean, look, this, you know, African affairs intrude upon American consciousness when there's a disaster. Uh, so, or alternately when there are uplifting stories that can make their way into Hollywood. So, you know... There's it's like the, both ends of the spectrum. Exactly. Then. So either Africans are pictured as being, you know, noble, uplifting human interest stories or as terror-ridden subjects of genocidal political violence. And... You know, it, 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 at a very basic level, you know, any Africa scholar will feel it to be an obligation to tell complex stories about the African past and about African politics. Uh, my own interest at the moment is animated by, you know, a desire to tell a story about how totalitarianism worked, about how dictatorships function, because I think it can help inform American politics today, quite frankly. Yes, yes. A book about Idi Amin today um, bears, you know, it's not that Idi Amin is a kind of parallel with our own politics in the United States. But I think it's important that we would know how demagoguery functions, what happens to human idealism as it falls into the hands of totalitarian governments who try to turn it for, to their own interests to target minorities and to make uh, possible programs of action and reform that can be quite violent and destructive of interlaced multicultural human societies. So, you know, it's not that the Amin government is an object lesson for for us, but I think it would be good if Americans did learn about about the history of the Amin dictatorship as we enter, you know, as we're now at the outer edge of our own dangerous time in our politics today. Amen to that, Derek. Mm. So the stories that that you because you've got you've you're curated a couple of stories to tell us today. Yeah. Um, and and you were actually we were kind of uh, at the break we were kind of joking oh, so this is a kooky story or so <laughs> but it's it's a real story right so this is part of like um, I don't know like a I don't know is it too much to say like a an everyday person in in what they're attempting well look I've got here with one a big idea <laughs> well exactly yeah I mean much of the book is about ordinary people with big ideas. Uh, who were found reasons for inspiration kind of at the margins of the Amin dictatorship. So uh, I can tell you about one man who's the subject of one chapter named Peter Wankulu, who was a sugar cane. He worked on a sugar cane plantation uh, in Jinja in the eastern part of Uganda, an otherwise anonymous fellow who in the 1960s develops an interest in Pan-Africanism, the ideology that is that African states ought to form a continental government that would draw all Africa together under a single centralized administration. His vision was like that of other African uh, activists who pursued Pan-Africanism, Kwame Nkrumah and others who imagined a kind of United States of Africa. That right. was the kind of goal. But Wankulu was a completely anonymous dude. He was just, he's kind of, you know, he's poor. He doesn't have much money. He never commands an audience. As far as I know, he's kind of a crank who labors away in a remote corner of Uganda's sugar economy, and yet who creates all of these beautiful collages, which now appear in one of the district archives that I've been working in. The collages are produced by him in the 1970s as part of an effort to make visible alliances and possibilities that he thought Ugandans ought to conceive and make actionable in their own time. Um, so I call him in the essay that I've just been writing here. He's, it's a kind of cut and paste pan-Africanism. He didn't 
rely on formal support from government or from the Organization of African Unity. He wasn't a newspaper editor. He didn't have professional printing equipment, didn't have a radio broadcasting booth. What was integral to all of his work was this sense of personal commitment. He worked with materials that came to hand, cello tape, glue, scissors, and photocopiers, <laughs> to assemble the elements of a campaign that, in turn, inflected the cultural politics of Uganda in the mid-1970s. Um, so, you know, today, Peter Wankulu is regarded in Uganda's politics as one of the founders of Pan-Africanism. In his own time, he was, as I said, a largely anonymous character who was a collage artist and who created these objects that he put up in the 1970s on public display. Look, where would he put them, Derek? Uh, and what, what would one, can you describe like a, a visual of what one would kind sure. of look like with a... All right, let me read the opening together. paragraph okay. of this uh, chapter. Okay. Folded in the middle of an otherwise unremarkable file in the archives of Jinja District is a poster about 35 inches long and 25 inches wide, headed in hand-drawn letters, OAU Patriotic Volunteers. It's a visually arresting collage. There are photographs of eminent African leaders clipped out of newspapers, interspersed with short essays set in type or written by hand. On the left is a photo of Haile Selassie, founder of the Organization of African Unity. On the right is Jomo Kenyatta. In the middle is a photo of a building housing the headquarters of the OAU. All the photos are captioned in handwriting with inspirational statements. Below the photo of the OAU is headquarters is written, Mr. Nzo Ekangaki, OAU Secretary General, has a very big job. <laughs> Toward the bottom right of the poster, there's a programmatic essay laying out the structure of a Union of African States. The first president uh, is to be Ethiopia's head of state, Haile Selassie, assisted by Jomo Kenyatta. Tanzanian President Nyerere is to head the Ministry of Finance, associated with the president of Togo. Ugandan President Idi Amin is to head the Ministry of Communications, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the poster's creator is this man named Peter Wankulu, an otherwise unremarkable clerk in the Kakira sugar plantation near Jinja. Uh, and he goes on, the essay goes on to describe uh, Wankulu's biography and his reasons for investing in this effort to create in collage an image for a pan-African government that might inspire uh, Ugandans and African more generally toward pan-African uni Unity. unification. That's right. um, and so he actually, he was making the decisions about who was going to do what role. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's great. Yes, that's right. I think Amin as Minister of Communications, as reason, for reasons we can talk about later, is just hilarious. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. You're, you've got living writers today on the program. Derek Peterson is here. Uh, we just were lucky enough to hear um, uh, a, a section from... Derek Peterson's forthcoming, well, future book um, on Idi Amin and uh, Uganda and, and the people's history. Um, M.T. Hetzel will be back. I used to visit all the very gay places Those come what may places Where one relaxes on the axis of the wheel of life To get the feel of life from jazz and cocktails The girls I knew had sad and sullen gray faces With distant K-traces That used to be there You could see where they'd been washed away By too many through the day Twelve o'clock tales then you came along with your siren song To tempt me to madness 
I thought for a while that your poignant smile was tinged with the sadness of a great love for me. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Derek Peterson is here. Um, and that was just Johnny Hartman and and John Coltrane. Did you want to say a couple words about Johnny Hartman, Derek? Or Yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a tenor sax player myself uh, and have always admired, you know, John Coltrane, who's the kind of paragon of tenor saxophone playing, uh, you know, universally. Johnny Hartman and Coltrane got together in 1962 and did that album, we're told, in one take, although it's hard to imagine. It's such a lovely album. In my view, it's the best jazz album ever recorded. Uh, it's such a fantastic, you know, piece of musicianship. Uh, so, you know, go check it out. Yeah, thanks th- Yeah, thanks for choosing it for today. So so when you were back, so you were an undergrad in Rochester. Right. Um, and you did student radio then. Yeah. What, what w- was your... W-R-U-R, yeah. it was called. I was the jazz music director. <laughs> figures <laughs> was that so is that when you actually having access to all those albums is that when you found a passion yeah I, or I, did you already have uh, it and, i had and, it i was a saxophone player coming into rochester i had the good fortune to take lessons in the eastman school of music and played in jazz ensembles there uh um, and you know rochester in the 90s was a great place to be a student student radio there, as here at Michigan, is a great, you know, sort of platform to create interesting and exciting programs of the kind like you're doing here. Uh, I never tried anything like Living Writers, but <laughs> it's amazing that you can sustain this kind of program over the course of time. Uh, but I, I have a lot of time for, for student radio as a space for idealism and to pursue interesting projects. Yeah. And so, and this connects now to part of the project that you're, you're working on now is Ugandan radio. And Idi Amin. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. So one thing we haven't talked about that I've gotten sort of involved in is an effort to work out a way of preserving the audio and television archives of Radio Uganda, Uganda's national broadcaster, which went on the air in the early 1950s. The first broadcast was the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, it went on the air sort of over the airwaves. The early broadcasts were done across television, sorry, across telephone lines. The signal was piped out to the provinces and uh, put through amplifiers so people could listen to it. It went on the air over the airwaves in shortwave in the late 50s, 1958, I think. Uh, And over the course of the late 50s and 60s, Uganda developed the infrastructure uh, for radio that was unparalleled in other uh, other parts of Africa. And they had the strongest uh, signal of any, the strongest transmitters, that is, of any radio station in Africa right through the 60s into 1971 when they went over to medium wave uh, and started broadcasting into Europe. Uh, Idi Amin 
1974, opened a station that could broadcast regularly to Europe and the United States. And so the archives of Uganda Radio are full of listener reports. Back in the day, in the 70s and 80s, if you were a listener, you would fill in a form and send it off to the manager of the the radio station to say, I've heard your signal. This is what was on the air. Can you please send me verification that I've, in fact, picked up your signal? It was something you did. There are dozens of these kinds of reports, probably hundreds, from places like Skokie, Illinois, and Japan, and Finland, lots of them from Germany. Uganda seems to have had a large listenership in Germany in the 1970s, people writing in with reports of what they heard. So I've gotten involved in an effort to figure out how to get the decaying 7- and 10-inch audio reels onto new media. We want them to be digitized. Uh, I've been working with colleagues at Uganda Radio, at the Uganda Broadcasting Corporation, to sort of assess the collection. There's a colleague here from the Duderstadt Center named Tom Bray, who's been oh, yeah. also... Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and of WCBN uh, right. fame. <laughs> yes, a friend of WCBN, I understand, too, who was in, with me in Kampala earlier this year, who helped to develop the kind of technical side of the project. Um, and so in that you know, in that that context, I've become interested in the history of Radio Uganda as an enterprise and have folded it into this book about the 1970s because, as I said, the radio signal was so important in projecting an image of Uganda to international audiences and to local audiences that could find on the radio signal inspiration and direction and also kind of minatory, uh, you know, guidance on how to behave. It really... Radio in the 1970s acted kind of as Twitter does in our own time. It was the vehicle that one used to get direct access to what the president thought. <laughs> um, it was uncontrolled. It was, I mean, was always on the radio. The, the, the radio archives of Uganda Radio are full of hours-long addresses that Amin gave to the nation over the radio airwaves, preempting any other program uh, that are full of, you know, minutia that he would broadcast over the airwaves, you know, telling so-and-so in that locality to, you know... To change, knock it off. To knock it off. <laughs> the contractor in Arua, you know, please change the design of the swimming pool. All, I mean, it's just an extraordinary range of stuff that Amin and other government officials used radio for. It's as though radio became the vehicle by which formerly bureaucracy had worked. That is, it, it was the vehicle for government communication for the sort of the transference of minutia to the provinces from the center. Uh, and as such, it was obligatory for every Ugandan to tune in in the 1970s. If you were a local government official, you had to listen to the broadcast every evening to make sure you picked up exactly what the president said about some policy within your locality. Was, yeah. And then you'd write it down and send out a circular to subordinate officials within your district to make sure they'd heard the radio broadcast so they acted in accordance with what the, what the president wanted. There's, you know, there's, that's how dictatorship worked. And so he started as he meant to go on then, because as you said, when Obate was um, abroad, he went to the radio station and Idi Amin said, look, this is what's happening now. Yeah, that's I'm right. here. <laughs> Yeah, there Over was this, the radio. <laughs> exactly. There was this image of the radio. Radio was a new technology in Africa in the late 60s and 70s. You know, it had, they'd been on the air in the 50s. But in the 60s, uh, something like eight out of every 10 Ugandans listened to the radio every day. And the number must have increased by the 1970s for reasons I've just described. So 
there was this presumption throughout, you know, all of government work in the 70s that radio was universally listened to, that even minute audiences could be addressed through the radio program because everybody was supposed to be listening in. So did they then imagine it was beyond the Ugandan borders too? So that's why it was important to be beaming it to Japan, Germany, Skokie, Illinois, or... or <laughs> um, <laughs> So the, the the audiences addressed on the radio were ordinarily domestic audiences. Uh, the foreign programming was meant to project an image of virility and Pan-African energy to other countries around the world. Amin saw himself and was seen by many Africans as a kind of paragon of anti-colonial commitment in his own time. He was uh, awarded the Malcolm X Award by uh, an organization in this country, uh, called the Organization of African-American Unity. He was feted by Stokely Carmichael and Miriam Makeba, who went to Uganda and got Ugandan passports from his So hand. complicated, isn't it? Yes. There was a time up to really the mid-1970s when Amin was a kind of forward-looking exemplar of what African leadership ought to look like. Mm. Uh, and African-Americans particularly uh, saw him as a kind of model Connecting. of how African politics ought to go. So the radio programming was part of this kind of international campaign to place Ugandan politics at the center of things. Amin was very convinced that he was president not of a remote and unimportant country, but he was president of a place that was at the center of everything. So he felt free. You know, he addressed himself to Richard Nixon about Watergate, sent very specific advice about how to deal with American politics. He sent constant correspondence to Britain, uh, you know, commenting on minute matters of British politics, telegrams to Golda Meir in Israel <laughs> about the Israeli conflict with the Palestinians. He, again, you know, there's a kind of comic aspect to this, but it's also, there's something quite kind of inspiring about it too, this sense that, you know, that Africa was not in fact a provincial yes, yeah. place, but in fact that that there was something to be learned from the Ugandan experience that other world leaders which is true benefit from, which is true, which it's is true. And what is what your work is centering around and the Africa um, studies center, African studies center here at UM and in Cambridge where you yeah. were before. Yeah. Right? Like this is no, I, indeed we, you know, I, there's a lot to admire really about the Amin government, even as one also worries about, you know, and, you know, is horrified by the demagoguery, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the pursuit of dissident minorities, the violence. Yes. Uh, one also has to, you also as a scholar have to recognize that there was a lot that people could get inspired about in the Amin government, in the ideological commitments that people held, uh, which drew inspiration from the example of Amin's war against colonialism, his commitment to black economic advancement. These were things that lots of people could get behind, really. Yeah. And radio was central to all of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do love our radio here. <laughs> yeah. Thank, thank you so much for coming and um, talking with me today, Derek. I've, I've so appreciated it. Sure. Um, come back anytime. Pleasure. Okay. Thank you for having me, T. Again. Um, and so today on today's program, Derek Peterson, uh, we've had the book's creative writing, translation, bookkeeping, and the work of imagination in colonial Kenya on the table with us. And also... Um, Pilgrim's Politics yes. or Ethnic Patriotism and the East African Revival, A History of Descent. Um, and we've got an upcoming book to look forward to by Derek Peterson. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Listening to the Daily Sports Report on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm Evan Osterley alongside Alex Kramer, Cameron Fish, Lucas Vargas, and Nick Hornberg. As you could hear, we started out with the Tennessee fight song, and we're going to start out our conversation with the University of Tennessee and their wonderful coaching search. <laughs> um, it's, it's definitely a word you could use to <laughs> What are the odds they hire Butch Jones at a higher at a higher price again? It's it's unprecedented <laughs> to say the least. So Tennessee fired Butch Jones. Brady Hoke coached the last two games as the interim head coach, and began their coaching search this week this this weekend, I should say. And it's it has not gone well to say the least. They've tried <laughs> and struck out with several candidates. There have been situations with. Um, conflicts with the athletic department. Um, the most significant uh, athletic director, John Curry, made an offer to Jeff Brom, Purdue's head coach, who's only been there for a season after coming from Western Kentucky, and then took the offer to the chancellor. Chancellor wouldn't agree to a buyout.